This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. NATO turns 70 this month. The military alliance is at an interesting crossroads. The Trump administration has commitment issues with NATO. It's exacerbated internal conflicts and raised questions about NATO's mission. At the same time, a survey from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs says public support for NATO is at an all-time high. Last night at the Council, four recent U.S. ambassadors to NATO marked the 70th anniversary. Several are with me now. Victoria Newland was ambassador from 2005 to 2008. She's now a senior counsel at the Albright Stonebridge Group. Thanks for joining me, Victoria. Thank you, Jerome. And Douglas Lute was U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2013 to 2017. He's now a senior fellow at the Project on Europe and the Transatlantic Relationship at Harvard's Kennedy School. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. And Evo Dalder was U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2009 to 2013, and he is president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Good to see you, Evo. Great to be here. I wanted to start with uh, the report that uh, you wrote, <clears throat> NATO in Crisis. Uh, Doug Lute, you wrote it along with uh, another former ambassador to NATO who's not here, uh, Nick Burns. And you did you had 10 ideas about what NATO could do differently. And I think people would be um, surprised by some of the um, more blue sky thinking that you've done about, about technology and about China. Um, what are some of the things that you think NATO could do if it put its mind to it? Well, the report is really the result of six months of consultations on both sides of the Atlantic with uh, current officials, uh, both in NATO and uh, in national governments and, and former officials and, um, and European uh, experts, European security experts. And in the course of that six months, we began to take careful notes about the sorts of challenges that these consultations revealed. And we came up with a long list, in fact, a list of 10, uh, 10 challenges. Um, and as we looked at these challenges, you know, there was quite a bit of coherence as we talked to different groups and so forth. So then we organized these 10 uh, in three baskets, if you will. Uh, we found four challenges which predominated from within the alliance. So this is sort of inside baseball, uh, inside NATO headquarters. Four that uh, emanated from just outside the boundaries, the geographic boundaries of the alliance. And two, as you suggested in your question, that sort of loom on the horizon meaning that they're not actually upon us yet, uh, but we can forecast that these are going to be challenges. And that's how we've set this up. So let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, one or two from inside the alliance. Uh, number one is the absence of a presidential leadership from the United States president for the first time in the 70-year history of the alliance. Second one is uh, uh, underperforming uh, European defense spending. The Europeans are not yep. committing, and here President Trump is actually right, but he joins every predecessor American president in calling for increased uh, European defense spending. Uh, from outside the alliance, Putin's Russia uh, makes the list, um, but so does uh, the war in Afghanistan, for example. And then the two that loom on the horizon are maybe um, the ones that your listeners will be interested in. Uh, the first is uh, what we believe is a – that we are on the leading edge of a technological change or a, tech, a wave of technological change having to do with uh, digital technologies that should probably inform military investment. So these are artificial intelligence. They call it cyber warfare for a reason. Well, so cyber capabilities, right? But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and so forth uh, are likely to be 
uh, likely to uh, impact in a very dramatic way military technology. And then the other one, the, the, la- the other one on the horizon, is the emerging competition with China. And we don't pose this as a military competition, but we think NATO needs to wake up. Europe needs to wake up to the competition, which will probably dominate the next several decades. Uh, Victoria, what do you think about something like uh, electronic warfare? I mean, obviously, we've seen Russian interference in everybody's elections in NATO and the United States. Is that something NATO should be doing, looking into combating Russian election interference? Absolutely. Russia's trying to undercut confidence in our democracy, and it's trying to insert itself in the conversation among citizens in democratic countries. One of the great benefits of NATO is it is a big family that meets continuously. So whenever we all face a challenge, whether it's strictly military or whether it's a hybrid challenge to the fabric of our nations, we should be talking about it at the NATO table. Many of the countries around the table have been subject to cyber attack, to the hacking of emails, release into the system, to disinformation campaigns, all this. It's not a new technique. The Soviets did it too, but it's turbocharged now with technology. We saw it in the French election, in the German election, in the UK election, in the Dutch election, we can combine our experience at NATO and look at countermeasures, look at how we can um, both harden our own societies against it, but also whether we ought to be on the offense a little bit more. There are things that Putin doesn't want his own citizens to know that we could perhaps expose as a a way of uh, increasing the pain. So, yes, we should be using NATO for this conversation. Um, Evo, do you have some thoughts about cyber war in NATO? Well, I think a large way to think about this. Uh, We shouldn't be thinking of the United States or Germany or France or the UK just as countries who should take care of what's happening uh, uh, to themselves, but as allies, as friends, that how we deal with whatever the challenge is, uh, whether the challenge is internal or it's immediately on our border or it is something like a cyber attack, that we're much more effective, we're much more able to deal with those questions if we do it together. And one of the great innovations of, of American foreign policy back uh, at, the, at the end of World War II was, the, was this idea that if we create alliance structures, friends uh, in the economic realm, in the political realm, and in the military realm, uh, we're more likely to be able to not only secure ourselves but to create a world in which the challenges and threats that are out there are effectively dealt with. And we're sort of moving back into a world where everybody is just focused on themselves and The idea of America first has become an idea of America alone. Uh, Of course, American interests should always be first uppermost in the mind of a president or a foreign policy. But the idea of America alone means that we're no longer listening or trying to work together with our friends and allies, not just in Europe, but in Asia and in other parts of the world. And as a result, we're losing out. We're not as effective in dealing with the new kinds of uh, challenges that we face, one of which is the reality that the Russians are trying to divide us internally uh, among ourselves using cyber and other means uh, to do so. We're much more effective if we deal with those kind of challenges together. I'm interested a little in what you think the alliance wants. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the U.S. always berates the other members of the alliance for not doing enough defense spending, but some of them do enough defense spending. And it's the Baltic countries, it's Poland, it's people who are afraid of Russia who do the most defense spending in, in the unit. Um, 
and that goes back to the good old-fashioned mission, Russians out, Americans in, Germans down. And there seemed to be some um, simplicity in that. Everybody understood what the mission was. But now NATO does things uh, outside the theater that maybe aren't what the Baltic countries and Poland who are most afraid of Russia want. Uh, the U.S. goes into Afghanistan with NATO and Libya with NATO and Yugoslavia was outside of theater. And, and none of these things – look particularly effective when the at the end of the day, um, should NATO pare down its mission some and go back to um, more of a grassroots anti-Russia alliance? Well, you're right to point out that the, the original mission, the, re- the reason we set up NATO was to compete with the Soviet Union in the wake of World War II, right? Uh, and that collective defense uh, mission, where it's sort of one for all, Uh, all for one, um, saw us all the way through the Cold War. Uh, When that mission was less of a priority with the breakup of the Soviet Union, NATO did other things. Uh, And and so, for example, not long after the breakup of the Soviet Union, NATO went into Bosnia, 1995, a couple years later into Kosovo and so forth. And the logic there was that while the threat of the Soviet Union no longer loomed over NATO, NATO assessed that the more secure its neighborhood – just outside its borders, right, the more stable and secure NATO itself would be. And that was the logic that took us into the Balkans and ultimately took us into uh, Afghanistan, even though it's not even a neighbor. It's a a far neighbor um, all the way in Central Asia. But the logic here was that there are threats and challenges to NATO that are not immediately on NATO's border. And if you address those in advance, then NATO itself will be more secure. Also, if you think about the fact that NATO is this family and geographically where you sit is where you stand, different aspects of these challenges were important to different members. So if you're Italy and you're facing lots of refugees from North Africa and from Libya, you want NATO to be involved in Libya. If you're the Balts, obviously you're most worried about Russia. And we need to remind everybody that NATO has been 18 years in Afghanistan because the United States was hit on September 11th and our allies rallied to our cause. Uh, So pieces of these missions are existential for different NATO members and the whole point of the alliance is that we come to each other's assistance like a family. But in the end, are these these missions successful? I mean, if if Libya is not something that the Italians would look back on now and say, well, that really stopped refugees coming into Italy. It it, it made more refugees come into Italy. Uh, The Afghan war went on for forever and, you know, nobody seems to know how to end it and it looks like a loser. The, um, The war in Yugoslavia ended, you know, when the U.S. finally got in, but it didn't, it was a, you know, can't say it's really a beautiful thing right now. It is, is, should NATO, I mean, NATO is acting at the behest of the U.S. when the U.S. says it's okay to out of theater and, and it's unsuccessful. Is that some, is that a way people should look at this? I mean, in Bosnia and Kosovo, you had two genocidal wars right on the edge of the main center of Europe, which NATO ended. Now, were the, the there are countries now that are trying to find their way as sovereign European states, but it's a whole lot better than having genocide in the middle of Europe. In the Libya context, we had a, a, a dictator who was rampaging against his own 
population, and that's how the refugee flows started. Now, I personally believe we should have done more after decapitating the leadership to stabilize Libya, and it might look better now. But the fact that we work together both in a NATO context and a U.S.-EU context um, kept that refugee flow from being even worse. Afghanistan's very, very complicated. But, you know, remember what happened. Because we ignored Afghanistan in the 90s, al-Qaeda flourished and developed there and caused the greatest attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor. So as compared to what is the first question you should ask? So none of the cases you cite are sterling examples of success. But, you know, there's a bit of a counterfactual counterpart to that question. I mean, what would it be had we not intervened? And, and frankly, in each of those cases, I can imagine a worse outcome yeah. than the less than fully satisfying story today. Yeah, and I, I, I'd add uh, uh, to that that the fact that NATO was involved, as Toria said, some of those conflicts were important for different people because of the region where they live. Uh, and the fact that NATO as a whole evolved made NATO as a stronger and more capable alliance over time, including on that very core mission of collective defense of NATO territory against the possible Russian attack. The Estonians, who of course care deeply about it, the Latvians and Lithuanians, want the United States involved, want NATO involved in the defense of their territory, and realize that if they contribute to the security of the United States by putting forces in Afghanistan, it is more likely that the United States will take their security seriously when it is threatened. That's the deal uh, that, that gets made and one of the reasons why you see uh, the alliance involved in these kinds of operations, even if not totally successful in each and every turn, is in order to strengthen the unity uh, of the alliance so that when their security interests are affected, uh, the allies will be there for them. And that's an important way of how to think about the alliance working. I'm talking with Evo Dalder and Victoria Newland and Douglas Luth. They were all U.S. ambassadors to NATO. NATO turned uh, 70. I wanted to, and this month, um, I wanted to ask a question about NATO and the future relationship with Russia. Um, does NATO um, change the way the all the countries do business with Russia? If there is a NATO there and it does hunker down to do things like Estonia and Poland want and be kind of more of a uh, anti-Russia thing and we go in and we start fighting the, the Russian uh, cyber activities, do we have a, a situation where our relationship with Russia never gets better? Is there a way to make our relationship with Russia more normal with NATO? Or is NATO just uh, the the thing that exacerbates and, and wrecks the relationship with Russia? So NATO's actually tried very hard twice to establish good working relations with NATO, the, with Russia. The first time was in 1997 when we first started expanding the alliance after the end of the Cold War. We created something called the Permanent Joint Council where we had a regular Forum, uh, the NATO on one side of the table, Russia on the other, to try to work through security issues that the Russians didn't love because they felt like it was bilateral and it was all of us versus poor little Russia. So then we reconstituted it after September 11th in 2003 as the NATO-Russia Council. And Russia sits in that body in alphabetical order, just like a NATO member. And a lot of us thought when we established that, that most of the business of NATO, everything that didn't have to do with concerns about 
Russian revanche or potential revanche would migrate to this NATO-Russia forum. But the Russians never could get themselves into a cooperative, collaborative spirit. So they always saw things in zero-sum terms. One example was when we started worrying about Iran's nuclear capability, we were going to build missile defenses in Europe. The Russians were worried that they were targeted at them. So we said, why don't you build missile defenses for Iran? We'll build missile defenses for Iran. We'll use the NATO-Russia Council so that those systems can work together against the threat that we share. But we never could get the Russians to trust that. So it was a missed opportunity. It still think, exists. I think NATO plays two fundamental roles. One is the one that Victoria just outlined, and that's it's a platform for dialogue with Russia. So you could have 29 individual allies create, and, and they all have, bilateral relations with Russia. But, but communicating as an alliance of 29 with Russia at the same table is a much more powerful, potentially useful diplomatic platform than just 29, um, 29 individual relationships. But the other key function is one of collective defense. So here, I think the deterrent function of NATO, with NATO troops um, positioned in key potential hotspots like the Baltics uh, and in Poland, uh, like in the Black Sea, in the Baltic Sea, and so forth, um, provides a very clear message to Russia that while uh, the alliance has its challenges, and the report you mentioned outlines these challenges, um, NATO stands together, and there's a very bright red line uh, that any attack on NATO will be considered by all the allies an attack, as an attack on them. Um, and so there's both a deterrent function and a dialogue function, and these need to go hand in hand. Yeah, the, the, the only way in which it really works is to make very clear where the red line is yes. and then look for uh, avenues of cooperation. Put them out there, whether it's a mm -hmm. missile defense cooperation or dealing on arms control uh, issues or uh, having a dialogue on what's happening in the Middle East or in, uh, or in the Mediterranean or up in the Arctic. Uh, can be may pop can be is possible because you've said there's a red line. Uh, we may have differences over uh, uh, that uh, uh, that are out there, but we're not going to solve those differences militarily. Uh, let's do it through dialogue. But then let, let's also find ways to cooperate, as we did, for example, in Afghanistan. It became very important as we surged troops into Afghanistan in 09 and, uh, and 10 that we have the airspace and uh, the rail uh, connecting network through. Uh, Russian territory into Afghanistan, and we were highly cooperative for a number of years uh, until uh, un un until the relationship went south again. In part, in, in major part, because of what the Russians did uh, in Ukraine. Last question, um, President Trump. What he's done in talking about NATO is uh, is this something that can be undone? Can the trust ever be the same as it was five or 10 years ago? The, if you've got a U.S. president questioning uh, the key tenets of NATO Article 5, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't pony up when people say, do you want to defend Montenegro, what, what happens? So when you consider trust, it's such a psychological, uh, immeasurable quantity, right? Uh, I liken it to trust between individual persons, right? And you can be in a relationship, a family relationship, a business relationship, and when that relationship undergoes a violation of trust, uh, I think all of us have experienced as individuals that you can't rebuild that trust automatically. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and everything's going to be okay. So there'll be a period, I think, after the unpredictable 
uh, leadership of this administration where we will have to do some repair work uh, and we will have to work hard to regain the trust of our allies. Uh, but I don't think the damage that's been done in the first two years of this administration is terminal. I think it can be repaired. You know, um, uh, trust is a, it, it's, it, it's a difficult thing. It's very hard to, to reestablish once it's broken. Think about the marriage. Uh, uh, but it's not impossible. And, and on the one hand is Trump. On the other hand, we have a number of things in the U.S. Uh, uh, relationship with NATO that is very strong. We have a Congress that has repeatedly voted unanimously in one form or another to reaffirm America's commitment to the defense uh, uh, of, of NATO. Uh, the House has passed a measure that said uh, the U.S. president cannot use any funds uh, to withdraw from NATO. So you have very strong congressional action. A lot of Congress uh, men and women and senators are going over to Europe and spending time there. Nancy Pelosi was just in Europe uh, as one example. And secondly, what you mentioned at the outset, public opinion. Uh, the American public is as strongly in favor of NATO today as it was at the height of the Cold War. 75% of Americans want to either maintain or increase support uh, to NATO. And that sends a powerful message that perhaps this is an individual, an important individual, he happens to be president of the United States, uh, that is questioning NATO, but it is not the United States of America that is doing so. Victoria? It, it's it's going to take uh, beginning again to work on common problems, I think, and meeting those challenges together. So we're all confronting a very ambitious China. Uh, as Doug's report makes clear, They ha they want uh, they have great ambitions on the European continent now. If we use NATO and other multilateral platforms to work together on how to collaborate where we can with China but protect ourselves when our security is threatened, that will be a win-win net good for both sides of the Atlantic. Similarly, on Russia, we started this conversation talking about the challenges of, of cyber and democratic manipulation, if we can begin to work on those issues together, 21st century technologies, everybody will, be, will see benefit. But I think we would also agree that everybody's got to pay their fair share on the defense side. I think we just simply disagree that beating up your family is the way to make it stronger. We would rather roll up our sleeves and figure out how we build and defend together. Victoria Newland, Evo Dalder, and Douglas Lute were all U.S. ambassadors to NATO. They took part in NATO Turns 70 uh, uh, marking uh, last night at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And if you want to see it, you can go to the Chicago Council website and check out the event. It is at chicagocouncil.org. Great to see you all. Thank you for joining us. Thank Glad you, Jerome. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about nonviolent peacekeeping. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Civilian losses are always a factor in armed conflicts. Many armed groups deliberately use violence against civilians as a tactic for furthering their political and military goals. The UN noted, however, in October of 2015, that there's a lot that people can do without military training to help uh, unarmed civilian protection and use it as a method for the direct protection of civilians. Mel Duncan is in that business. He is the founding director and director of advocacy and outreach for Nonviolent Peace Force. Great to see you, Mel. It's good to be back, Jerome. Can you say something about uh, and describe for us what nonviolent peacekeeping is, what civilian peacekeeping for civilians is? Yes. We provide direct protection for civilians who are under threat of violent conflict and war. We have well-trained civilian protectors who utilize one or more of 10 methods that have been shown to work in violent conflict, both to prevent violence and to protect civilians. We always work in close cooperation with local communities and really support and enhance their ability to protect themselves first and foremost, and then what we can add to help uh, to protect them and quell the violence. I think a lot of people remember the blue helmets of the United Nations, and yes. it, there was an era where the UN kind of thought that that's what they were doing, um, but they found themselves uh, sometimes watching terrible things happen, and they moved to a more armed peacekeeping mode. Um, what is what is there? You know, why did why did that not work for the UN? Why do you think that um, the kind of an unarmed peacekeeping that they were trying just didn't work out. I'm not unequivocally saying that it didn't or doesn't work. I think that there are situations where armed blue helmets are necessary, but most of the tasks that they do can be done as effectively or more effectively and more affordably by well-trained civilians. The Department of Peacekeeping at the UN, which has recently been renamed to the Department of Peace Operations, about 90% of their 100,000 employees are armed. And these are units that are seconded from national armies who rotate into a violent conflict in six-month cycles. And so their ability to protect depends upon threat force. Uh, and our ability to protect depends upon building relationships and engagement with the local community. So it's an entirely different approach for the protection of civilians, although we both do protection of civilians. Describe some places where nonviolent peace force has been effective. Our largest project today is in South Sudan, where there has been the reemergence of a war at the end of 2013. Uh, tens of thousands of people have been killed and millions have been displaced. We have 15 teams around the country who are protecting civilians, for example, in places where people have had to flee to uh, gain protection and are living in what are called protection of civilian areas. We work in one Jerome where there's 114,000 people living. Every day, women have to leave 
those camps to collect firewood because they have to cook. The area is becoming more and more defoliated, as you can imagine, with 114,000 people living there. So they go as far now as 20 kilometers into the bush. They are routinely raped by government soldiers and rebel soldiers, using rape as a weapon of war. When we provide three to five unarmed civilian protectors to accompany 20 to 30 women, the soldiers look the other way. Over a two-year period, those women were never attacked. So that's one example. Unfortunately, uh, there is a UN peacekeeping mission there, UNMIS, and they refuse to do uh, that kind of work in terms of accompanying women uh, into the bush. We're talking with Mel Duncan. He's from Nonviolent Peace Force. And I wanted to um, ask a question about the other groups that do this and how you coordinate with them. There are a bunch of groups that get, yes. go out there and do this, sometimes um, region-specific and, and things like that. That's been a very interesting phenomenon. There are now 42 non-governmental organizations around the world who are doing this work in 24 locations. No one set out to organize all these groups. They have been emerging and I think they are emerging in response to the critical need as we set as a planet the dubious record of having more refugees today than ever before in history, as violent conflict is increasing, and as climate disruption enhances violent conflict. Uh, these groups are looking at what can be done uh, to protect themselves and to protect others. Because if you took all means of civilian protection, the Blue Helmets, uh, the European Union, multilateral, single state, non-governmental organizations, and for the sake of conversation said they're all effective, they would be a tiny portion of what needs to be done to protect civilians who are under threat. So we have to push ourselves and learn from each other what are effective and affordable ways that can be replicated and that can be done by communities in areas of war and violent conflict. I imagine, you know, if you need so many more peacekeepers out there, it, uh, is it hard to find people who want to do this work? It, it, you would kind of put your life on hold and go and do this for a while. I it has never been a problem. Routinely, we will have 10 applicants for every space that we have available. And as you know, this is hard work. People are living in very rural areas. Sometimes there's a plane that comes in once a week. Uh, they're living, dealing with malaria, dealing with shortages of food, and dealing with violent conflict. People are coming forward because they can see that they can make make a difference, and not only putting their lives on hold, but some people are making this their career. And we do pay our unarmed civilian protectors as we should. This is a profession. How do you raise money for nonviolent Peace Force? First of all, from individuals. Uh, we certainly need contributions. In this country, they're tax deductible. Uh, at 
nonviolentpeaceforce.org. And we really do rely on those individual contributions to establish projects. Once they get established, we find that we can attract more institutional type of funding. So our largest funder right now uh, are the Dutch. Uh, We also receive uh, funding from Australia, from Norway, from Belgium, from Germany, and from the United States. More recently, uh, the State Department has been providing some funding for this. How would you rate the enthusiasm for the United States when it comes to peacekeeping? Because it seems like the U.S. is cutting the peacekeeping budget at the United Nations. There are uh, The U.S. does not seem that interested in this, but you're getting some money from the State Department. But <laughs> and by the U.S., you mean the U.S. current government? Yes. Uh, there is not an interest in any form of multilateralism, uh, of any form of peacekeeping. Uh, the Trump administration, as you point out, has consistently cut their contribution to the Department of Peacekeeping. But they're not the whole government. There are people in Congress who are supporting this work. Uh, In fact, we need um, Senator Durbin, who is on a key subcommittee, to speak up on behalf of unarmed civilian protection as that appropriations bill comes through. There are people in the State Department who are there working as careers so that administrations come and go. And so there is still some resonance and some understanding. There's less support uh, for this work at the UN by the U.S. uh, as that mission has changed and as we currently don't even have an ambassador to the UN. It seems like your work is complementing the work of UN peacekeepers at times. Wouldn't you describe it the way you did in Sudan? is there any way to formalize that? Do they do they want to work with you in a uh, in a capacity that would just be a force multiplier? Yes, we uh, work closely with the Department of Peace Operations. In fact, we're having a joint retreat uh, in two weeks to look at how to scale up unarmed approaches within the UN context. People who are paying attention realize that the military approach will never be sufficient for the protection of civilians, and as the studies that you cited at the beginning of the program found that the over-reliance upon military approaches for the protective protection of civilians is indeed harmful. And so we have to look at what are those other ways. And in terms of peacekeeping, we go places where armed peacekeepers can or will not go, and they can go some places where we cannot go. And so there is a complementary aspect to it, but we also work in many areas where there are not armed peacekeepers. For example, in Myanmar, in Mindanao, uh, in the Philippines, and uh, there simply are not deployments there. Uh, Tell me what kind of uh, work you're doing there. Uh, In Mindanao, where we've had our uh, longest standing team, we were invited a little over 10 years ago. Uh, because we only work on a nonpartisan basis, we have to establish relationships with all of the armed actors. And so in that case, it was the government of the Philippines and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. They don't have to love us. We don't endorse them. But they have to know who we are and that we're there to protect civilians. So when a ceasefire was brokered by the Malaysians 
in Mindanao. We were invited by both the government of the Philippines and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front to head up the civilian protection component of that agreement. And so for four years, we monitored, verified, reported, and intervened on any threat to civilians. And that ceasefire did hold and led to a comprehensive peace agreement. Why are you still there then? Do you, can, you, if, can you see yourself pulling out? You've been there 10 yes. years. I, we're still there because there was a very dramatic change in the presidency. Uh, going from uh, President Aquino to uh, President Duterte. And there is now, though, a period where the implementation of the peace process is still on track. And so both the uh, opposition group and the government have asked us to have – it's a smaller team – but to help with stability as that peace plan continues to be implemented. Talking with Mel Duncan, he's the founding director of Nonviolent Peace Force. They're at work all over the planet – 15 locations? How many? No, that was in, um, in South and Sudan. Just in South Sudan. Yeah. Um, now, are you speaking anywhere, or can people find you and see you in, in, this, in this area while you're here? You know, I'm just speaking at some uh, house parties that have been set up, uh, so there's no public engagement that's uh, in Chicago this time around. If people want to get in touch, though, they can go to the website? Yes, which is nonviolentpeaceforce.org. Well, uh, it's great seeing you again. Mel Duncan is the founding director and director of advocacy and outreach for Nonviolent Peace Force. Check them out at nonviolentpeaceforce.org. Thanks a lot for joining us, and good luck in the future. Okay, thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with one of Nigeria's biggest comedians. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of Nigeria's biggest stand-up comics is coming to Chicago. His name is Basket Mouth. Now, let me ask you, have you ever seen a black man on Animal Planet? Think about it. Have you ever? Never. Maybe crime fighters, yes. White man who enter forest, like that crocodile don't guy is dead now. Like, yo, come over here. You see my man? That's the most dangerous snake in the world. With one bite, you're dead in five seconds. Let's go close. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's crazy. White people are never, ever afraid. The only time you see a white man afraid is when, only one place, when you go to the U.S. Embassy, when they're about to refuse your visa. So I'm afraid, but I can't grant you this visa. Okpocha Bright is Basket Mouth, and he is coming to Chicago on Sunday, April 28th at the Laugh Factory. Thanks for joining us, Basket Mouth. Yeah, thank you very much, my man. How did you come by the name? Where did you get the name Basket Mouth? Uh, I just did a gig back then about like uh, 20 years ago or longer. And backstage, 
some guy just walked up to me because then I used to go by my real name. But when I was done on stage, some guy walked up to me and went like, yo, dude, you've got a basket mouth. And I was like, hmm, I like that one. <laughs> and ever since then, I, it just talked because it's a common name in Nigeria. It means someone that speaks, has no filtering system, right? So when he called me that name, I was like, this is perfect because I don't have a filtering system. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty catchy. What I've understood in the last 10 years in Nigeria, stand-up comedy is having a heyday, a real boom. What happened in stand-up comedy in Nigeria? Um, yes, uh, depression helped. <laughs> uh, everybody wants to be happy right now. <laughs> uh, the economy as well helped. Everybody's upset at something. So everyone wants to laugh. But I don't think that's just it, though. I think the industry just started growing and the rest of the world have started noticing that we've got a lot of rich talents out here. Uh, thanks to the likes of Trevor Noah and a couple of other Africans that have been able to showcase their brands outside Africa. So right now, let's just say the rest of the world is paying attention and the Africans and especially Nigerians are aware of it and taking advantage of it. How did you become a comedian? Why did you get into this? Did it seem like a growth industry when you started? No, it, it wasn't. It was actually, there was no existing stand-up comedian that I, I knew at the time that I jumped into it. I was thrilling. I was making some of my friends laugh. And my brother's friend saw me and asked me if I've seen Eddie Murphy's Delirious. And I was like, no. If you're here, ice cream truck, do they have the ice cream man around here? Remember when the ice cream man used to come to town when you was little? And I'll get my ice cream and I didn't eat it. I sang for a little while, you know. I had some ice cream. I had some ice cream. I had some ice cream. And I'm gonna eat it all. I'm gonna eat it all. The ice cream be running all down your arm and shit. Ice cream. You know, there'd be one kid on the side, they get no ice cream, and kids don't care. They go, you don't have no ice cream. You didn't get none. You didn't get none. You didn't get none. Because you are on the welfare. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. Other kids join in. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. And his father is an alcoholic. He wants some ice cream. He wants to eat some of my ice cream, but want to lick? Psych. You want some ice cream. You want some ice cream. So he gave me VHS tape back then, and I watched it, and I was like, this is what I want to do. And I just followed the dream. I was just doing it to make people laugh. I didn't know people get paid from cracking jokes and performing on stage. I thought it was just something that was, you know, normal. Until someone paid me, and I was like, "Wow!" And that was when I knew that it was uh, was the kind of venture that I was lucrative. But when I jumped into it, it was more for the love for the art itself. Now I was watching this Al Jazeera documentary on you, and one of the comedians said, "You're so big in Nigeria that you don't even have to make funny jokes. If you just talk, people laugh." Yeah, and I hate that. <laughs> it makes, it's, it's making me lazy. That's the reason why I want to like take it out there and uh, you know try as much as possible to you know experience other market. But I won't say I'm that big, but I, I do pretty well. Uh, but you know, when you're familiar with the environment and they're familiar with you as a person, it makes it very easy. But it doesn't put out the, the challenge 
for me to be able to face the rest of the world. So I don't get blinded by the the comfort that I get in this space. Yes. So that's the reason why I'm trying to take myself out there. I'm talking with Basket Mouth. He's a Nigerian-based comedian, and he will be at the Laugh Factory on Sunday, April 28th at 8 p.m. Well, what kind of jokes do you think work in the U.S.? Is there stuff you do in Nigeria that you cannot do here? Uh, yes, a lot. <laughs> um, I can create materials that makes a lot of reference to our culture and our tribe because a lot of people will not be able to understand it. So what I try as much as possible to do is to do materials that are universal, that people can relate to it. And this is not the first time I've done the Laugh Factory in L.A. before. And I think I understand how it works because they want to know Africa. And, you know, you can't get it better than someone that is just coming from Africa. I'm actually in Africa right now. <laughs> <laughs> so what's an example of a good Africa joke that people want to hear in the U.S.? A lot of people want to know what it's like. For instance, like, I still don't understand how kids talk back to their parents in the States and still survive, you know? I, so these are things that are of serious concern. <laughs> because out here in Nigeria... You can't even think about talking back to your parents. So I'll, I, people might want to know how it works out here and out there. So I do a lot of comparisons and all that in my materials. And I try as much as possible to make it safe, most especially, you know. Now, you grew up in Lagos and you do some Lagos juice. Lagos is so crowded, that kind of material. Yeah, Lagos is, uh, Lagos is very crowded. Yes. Okay, let me try and make this uh, more elaborate. Now, the kind of materials that every foreigner would like to hear about Nigeria, first of all, they want to know if the fraud is really thin here. <laughs> if, <laughs> they want to know all these things about the president, the government, how people live, who've got flies all of our, our clothes and all that stuff. So, ah, you know, I'm going to just try to make it clear that Africa is not the way it is. It's more or less like Wakanda, but not like that. <laughs> not with all the technology, but close. You know, so I'm just going to be doing a lot of... I'm going to try as much as possible to paint Africa the way it should be painted at the same time. You know, I still say the truth. That's why they call me basketball. I say the truth. I don't sure coach anything. I'm talking with Basket Mouth. He's a Nigerian comedian who's coming uh, to the Laugh Factory on Sunday, April 28th. You do a lot of jokes about your mom and your wife and uh, real people in your life. How do they react to some of your stuff? Um, they know I'm not saying the truth, so they don't get offended. And apart from that, it pays the bill. <laughs> so they don't get mad at it. But the thing is, there's always an element of truth in the material. I just um, kind of like blew it out of proportion. So even if I pick on something that they've done that I've created into a long material, they don't get offended because there's still truth in it. But so far, so good. I don't think I've exposed more than I should. So right now, I'm still safe. Yeah, my wife gets gets offended sometimes. Yeah, like, <laughs> When I say too much, but she'll be all right. <laughs> She's got a basket <laughs> mouth, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, is there a um, career trajectory that you're following? You mentioned Trevor Noah. Um, you know, comedians in the U.S., if they get pretty big, then they try to get a TV show, then they try to get a couple movies or something like that or following the movies. Do you have an idea of what your trajectory you want it to be? 
Yeah, like uh, I said earlier, I grew up on Eddie Murphy, um, Steve Harvey, and the rest of these guys. So I kind of like followed their pattern, the way they approached the, the industry as a whole. Like I started with stand-up comedy and I started doing sitcom. And now I'm executive producer of a sitcom out, out here as well. So I'm kind of like following the pattern because it's actually what works. You know, you can't survive on just stand-up comedy. They still want to act as well because it's still connected somehow. So I'm following the passion as well. So it depends on how the vibe is at a particular point in time. Because right now, I'm feeling the vibe for stand-up comedy. I just want to hit it hard again. Then after a while, I'm going to go to movies. But movies, not yet. There's so many movies right now coming out in Nigeria. I don't know if you've heard that we are the third largest uh, movie production country uh, you know, in the world. Yeah, so I don't want to release a movie that's going to get missing. So I'll probably wait for another 20 years when everyone is tired. <laughs> Akpocha Bright is the Lagos-based comedian who is coming to Chicago. He will be at the Laugh Factory on Sunday, April 28th. Thanks a lot for joining us, Basket Mouth. Good luck. Thank you very much. I'll see you on Sunday. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.